Good morning, everyone. Hopefully we're all nice and fueled up from that awesome waffle breakfast today and ready to break forth the Word of God and hopefully get something out of today's sermon. So let's start today's sermon with a word of prayer. Shall we bow our heads? Father God in heaven, we come before you today humbly asking for your guidance and direction um, here in this service. I pray for your guidance in my sermon that your words would be spoken and not mine and that everyone here today would be blessed and that um, your Holy Spirit would be now with us in this place as we gather together. We thank you so much for all of the many blessings that we enjoy, all of the things that you've given to us, and we pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. So the name of today's sermon is Biblical Money Management. Now, the idea for the lesson didn't actually come from me. We have to thank Pastor for that. He um, recommended to me to speak about this because recently, thanks to God's blessing in our life, um, my wife and I were able to attain a status of being debt-free. So praise God for that. So in light of that fact, and speaking on biblical money management, let's delve into the Bible and really see what God has to say about money, the various aspects of it. And in this lesson, you'll see that the first part is having to do almost exclusively with the Bible, what the Bible thinks about money. And the second part, we'll delve into a, a few more practical and, uh, shall we say, yeah, more practical aspects of money management. So, let us start in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 18. Um, I'll ask that we all turn there, please. This is going to be our spearhead verse. But if you could, we will be going through a few verses of Bible today. So please have your Bibles on the ready. All right, Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. So let's get a little bit of perspective about where this verse is coming from. I know we dropped right in. So the children of Israel... All right, they're getting ready to cross the Jordan. They're getting ready to go conquer those heathen. And this is God warning them and telling them, hey, don't forget this when you are having a sweet time over there with the milk and honey and you're having fun with all the people of the land, killing them and stuff. Well, it probably wasn't too much fun. But once you get prosperous, don't forget God because he is the one that gives you the ability to get wealth. If you forget that, then later on in the chapters, we get into the bad stuff, and um, we won't go there today. We'll focus on, hey, God's the one that gives you the power to get wealth. And I want to start the lesson on that, because you can do anything that all of these smart people tell you to do, Dave Ramsey, all the financial advisors in the world, but if you don't set God first, you will fail. You will not be able to manage money appropriately unless... Well, even the wicked sometimes have their wealth, I suppose. But as a rule of thumb, as God's people, let's start at Deuteronomy 8.18 and focus. God is the source of our wealth. So now that we've got that, uh, that set stone, now that we've got that anchor that our, uh, our um, sermon today is based on, let's look at some requirements set forth by God. Let's look at some requirements regarding money. Now, we're already in Deuteronomy, so right at the end of Leviticus, over there in the New Testament, 
Old Testament. Let's go over to Leviticus chapter 27. And we're going to look at 27 verse 30. Now the next part of really biblical money management and bouncing off of Deuteronomy 8.18 is what God requires of us regarding money. What is one of those things? I'm sure we've all heard of it. It's called tithe. Tithe. Let's read up a little bit about tithe. So Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. So, there in verse 34 we see, God's telling Moses. Moses is telling the people. So Moses didn't just make this up. It didn't come out of thin air. And then we also have another um, reference to it in Deuteronomy 14.22, which we'll touch um, here in a little bit. So all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Remember, it is the Lord's. So, what is the tithe? We saw here a tenth. So, what's a tenth? A tenth is 10%. Now, who here, is, who here are farmers? We got any farmers? All right, we got a couple. So, for perspective on this, in the Old Testament, our ancestors were, agrar were an agrarian society. Many of us still are today. But as you can see, these tithe laws started out with the seed of the land. Now, I know for a lot of us, we don't have, we, we wouldn't want to tithe or we wouldn't be able to tithe very easily with seed or with the fruit of the land. So instead, we do a monetary tithe, right? 10% of our income. All right, let's look at the other perspective, the other acknowledgement of the tithe. It's going to be over in Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Let's get a second witness. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Now, Deuteronomy has a little bit more of an addition that I really want to capitalize once we get to the end of it. So we're going to go... You know what? We'll bounce from verse 22, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22. And then we shall go from 22 to 28. All right. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed, that the field bringeth forth year by year. And the Levite that is within thy gates, thou shalt not forsake him, for he hath no part nor inheritance with thee. At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shalt lay it up within the gates. And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow which are within the gates shall come and shall eat and be satisfied. This is what's called the poor tithe. Every third year they'd have a poor tithe for the people listed. Now, I want you to focus on the last part of this verse, okay? This is really the motivation of tithing, not only because it's God commands it, but God's going to tell you what he can and will do for you if you obey him in this aspect. 
the Lord thy God, that, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest. Okay? God's telling you right there, if you obey his command here and you tithe, it's only 10%. It's not a lot. I know we give our government probably more than that in our taxes. So why can't we give God his 10%? He will bless you for it. Make no mistake. If you stop and you look at your numbers when you began tithing versus if you haven't been tithing, I can almost guarantee you that you'll see blessings in your life that you did not see before. All right, so we've gone over the importance and the blessing of tithe. And after discussing that now, let's look a little bit about um, the other aspect of not tithing. Turn with me all the way over to Malachi. Our good brother Jeremiah yesterday taught from Jer uh, Malachi. So we're going to go to a different part of Malachi, though. We're going to go to Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 7 through 12. All right. What's the reference here? We've got judgment. We've got judgment going on here. We've got some people that are not obeying God. Let's see what happens. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation." Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall, be not, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruit of your ground. Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed. For ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. So there in verse 8, who wants to be accused of robbing God? You know, it says, thou shalt not steal. And even stealing against a man is, should be considered a, an egregious sin. But what about from God? That's, uh, so that's a scary thing. I wouldn't want to be accused of that. Here we see people robbing from God by not giving him what he is owed. The tithe isn't ours. Nothing that we have is ours. We come into this world with nothing and we leave this world with nothing. God created everything. We are merely caretakers. We're merely given it from God to do as he pleases with what he's given us. So remember that. All right, let's look at some more things that I believe God requires of us in the realm of money. Now we're going to go into the New Testament now. Hopefully I've impressed upon you the importance of tithes. Now let's go to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And we'll read that real quick. Regarding money. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Amen. Once again, 
God, through Paul, to Timothy, to us, has given us instruction regarding money. All right. We acknowledge everything we have is God's. All right. We're giving God what he's rightfully owed, tithes and offerings. All right, number three. Now, we've got to start providing for our own. Men, this especially falls to us. All right? If you're in a godly, biblical marriage, and your wife is the one providing for you, I guess maybe there's some weird, crazy circumstances where that might happen and be okay, but... I don't know if I should have just said that. It's not okay. You as the man, it's your job to provide for your household. And here we see that if you don't, if you don't provide for those of your own house, at least, you're worse than an infidel. That word infidel essentially means heathen or an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. So you can say, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and He's my Savior. But right here it's saying that you're lying if you don't provide for your own. All right, moving on. Let's go to another look into money. Matthew chapter 25. We're going to go and look at the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at what is called the parable of the talents. We're still in the aspect of stewardship of money. We're looking at the stewardship of what God gives us. What are you doing with God, with, what are you doing with what God has given you? So we're gonna, we're gonna begin in verse 14. And we're just gonna read through this parable. I know it's a, a little bit of a longer one, but it's an important one. It's the words of Jesus. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his servants and delivered unto them his goods. Hey, we're those servants. God's delivered unto us his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Not all of us have the same job. Some of us make more money than others. It's how it's going to be, okay? Unless, no, not unless. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth, and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh, and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came, and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Who wants that verse to be said about them? When you're sitting at the judgment seat before God and he's asking you, what have you done with your life? And you're able to tell him, I have gained five talents more. What a feeling it would be to hear our Lord Jesus Christ say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What a feeling that would be. 
Let's read on. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Just like our five-talent man, our two-talent man also brought forth two other talents with the gift that God had given him. Now, something that might be a little bit of dangerous to think about this circumstance is, okay, the five-talent man, he made more talents. He's the better. Well, the two-talent man, he also he returned the same amount. It was a 100% return on both accounts. So in God's eyes, he's given them the same reply, except for the omission of the word thou in the verses. He's given them the same reply because they've both done the same good job. They've returned 100%, 100% of what God gave him. Now, let's look at the third, the third servant. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gathered where I not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That third servant, he didn't get a very good review when he came before his Lord. He didn't do anything with his talent. Now, in this parable, the talents are obviously money. But in real-world example, you could also think of a talent as what we think of as a talent. What is your talent? Do you have a talent for singing and praising God? Do you have a talent with an instrument? Do you have a talent for speaking? Do you have a talent for exhorting others and uplifting them with the scriptures? So this doesn't just have to do with money. This has to do with your talents as well. Are you multiplying your talents? Not just your money, not just the physical things that God's given you, but are you multiplying God's kingdom? Or are you sitting alone by yourself? Mm, this is a little bit hard. God's going to judge me at the end, and well, if I just sit here and do nothing, then at least I won't be judged for being bad. No, that's just as bad. There at the end, we see God's judgment. So bring forth your talents. God has given everyone at least one. I can guarantee you, you'll find more than just one. God is a benevolent God. Let's aspire. How, how fearful, how utterly destroying of your spirit would it be if God were to say to you at the end, thou wicked and slothful servant, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gathered where I have not strawed. And in verse 30, that would bring 
That would just be awful. I, I couldn't imagine that. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. But let's not focus on that. Let's not be that person. Be those with the five and with the two talents who brought forth their talents. Be profitable for God. Let's look at a parallel. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So, here we see, as a minister, you're expected to be faithful. Makes sense? Now, faithfulness, reliability, is a necessary virtue of being a steward. Just like we saw in the parable of the talents, if you are not faithful in the smallest of things, how are you going to be faithful in the kingdom of God? How are you going to be faithful with what God has given you? No, instead, if all you have to do is start small, find something, focus on it, be faithful, have self-control in that thing, bring it forth. Faith and finances, they have a similarity. Um, one more parable that I really wanted to touch on is the parable of the unjust steward. Let's turn there. We're not going to read it for the sake of time. But there is one verse that I want to touch on before we move. We've got a few more warnings, biblical warnings about finances before we can move on to the uh, more personal and um, applicable parts of finances. So, Luke chapter 16, we're going to drop down to verse 13. Luke 16, 13. So, this is the parable of the unjust steward. Verse 13, 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. So, in the preceding verses, we see that dealing with money is unavoidable. All right? Who here hasn't ever dealt with money in their entire life? I didn't think so. It's a necessary part of life. Now, what we're being warned of here, and we'll look at some other verses here in a second, is that last part. You cannot serve God and mammon. What is mammon? Mammon is the love of money. Money, material possessions. It's a god. A false god. The false god of desiring money and things that we think make us happy or make us happy for a little bit. But they all flee away at the end of our lives when God asks us, What have you done with your life? So, Let's go back over to Timothy. Paul's letter to Timothy, he has a lot of nuggets of wisdom to Timothy. Great ones that we can glean. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to read a section of scriptures that corroborates what Jesus was talking about over there in the parable of the unjust steward. I'd recommend you read that parable. Uh, the parable goes from, I believe, verse 1 all the way to 13. Read that on your own time. 
um, when you have a chance. It's a good parable to read. But we're at 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 11. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and in many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. That last part of verse 11. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. At least some of them. Is the Holy Spirit working in your life? Well, it'll help you to flee from these things. All right, let's go back and look at verse... Let's start at verse 10. The love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. Okay? Mammon. That desire for worldly possessions or focusing your life on money, making money, 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 money. It's not your focus. God is your focus. Money is just a necessary aspect of life. Don't make it your focus. It won't end well for you. Let's go to another verse. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. We've got a little bit of time. We can bounce around through a few more scriptural verses before we have to move on. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. So this verse should look familiar. It has to do with, actually we read something almost exactly the same in Luke 16, Luke 16, verse 13. But I want to start at verse 19, Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is your time spent? Where are your mental faculties and resources spent? Are they uh, making money? Are they in recreation? Are they in something else other than your contribution to your church? Your contribution to God? If they are, there's something wrong. If they are, you may be a false God worshiper. You may have a false God in your life. And I pray that the Holy Spirit can make known in your life, if there is one, to do something about it. Because with the power of the Holy Spirit given by Jesus Christ, we can accomplish so much in our lives. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't worry too much about the ones here. Because moth and rust corrupts them. Thieves break through and steal. They won't be here forever. All right, there's also an Old Testament witness that for the sake of time we're not going to look at. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. I'd recommend taking a look at that one. These have to do with contentment. These verses as well in Timothy that we read. Be content with what you have. We're not all going to get the same. Some are going to be richer than us. Even wicked people are going to be richer than us. 
But are they richer in the kingdom than us? Are their treasures in heaven greater than ours? That's the way you got to be thinking. Oh, that person has a huge house with a pool and a slide and a jacuzzi tub. Oh, tell you what, after a hard day at work, I'd love to just sit in that jacuzzi tub. Oh. Or instead of thinking about that and coveting against your neighbor, which is commandment number 10 there, how about, why aren't you in scripture building up riches, building up wisdom, building up knowledge, teaching your children, teaching your wife. A couple other verses that we can take to look at in Philippians. We will go to this one. This one's Philippians 4, verse 11. This one also has to do with contentment and touches on some points that I spoke of earlier. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. And then we're going to go to 12 as well. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Amen. That verse 13 is a powerful one. But let, let's look at verse 12. And verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of want. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound. Do you know how to be content with what God has given you? Now that's not to say that if you're living in squalor and you're in debt way above your head to just sit around and be like, oh, well, I guess I'm just supposed to be in debt and I'm supposed to be living poor like this all my life. No. Do something about that debt work hard. This is saying, be content that you can't buy the newest car. Be content that you can't buy a huge house. I know plenty of people in this congregation who, as they were growing up, they didn't have enough rooms for their kids. Multiple kids had to pile into a single room. And even back then, that was normal. In fact, people today, we today, are richer than our ancestors. I'm sure our brother, Pastor Dan Gaiman, remembers times that we couldn't even imagine. Times that we would be, if we were taken from this time to his time, back when he was younger, we would be crying and, oh, this is awful. I miss my air conditioner. I miss my running water. I miss my electricity. It can always be worse. It can always be better, yeah? But how about you focus on that first one? It can always be worse. Be content with your situation. Because if you're not, things can always go bad. All right, let's move on from contentment and look a little bit at some what Proverbs has to say about wealth. You know, we're actually going to only touch on one scriptural section in Proverbs dealing with wealth, and then we're going to have to move on for the sake of time. So, quickly, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 11. Proverbs has all sorts of insights and wisdoms for us to learn. The cool thing about Proverbs, if I may digress, 
is it's split into 31 chapters. Now, more often than not, there are 31 and 30 days in a month, except for February. February doesn't know what it's doing, though. It's being weird. But anyways, if you take the time, read a Proverbs every day. If you're busy, surely you have, what, three, four minutes, five minutes, if you're a slow reader, to finish a book, or sorry, a chapter in Proverbs? Over the years of constantly doing that, every month you're reading through Proverbs. Every month, 12 times a year. 12 is a good number. You're reading through Proverbs. Eventually, you might end up um, memorizing some of these, at least some of the verses, maybe in time, bigger sections of these chapters. But anyways, just a thought. Proverbs, it's good to read every day. Let's drop down to, in Proverbs 28, verse 11. This whole section has to do with wealth, okay? And we're going to read a few tidbits. We're going to bounce around because not every verse specifically has to do with wealth. But food for thought as we move on. The rich man is wise in his own conceit, but the poor that hath understanding searcheth him out. Happy is the man that feareth alway, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. The prince that wanteth understanding is also a great oppressor, but he that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. Hateth covetousness. Have you guys ever met someone who doesn't, this is going to sound weird, but who doesn't want what his neighbor has? Sounds a little weird. But hating covetousness, once again, goes back to contentment. Be happy with what you have. Don't be looking to your neighbor. Don't be looking to your brother and saying, you know what, honey? I wish I had that. That's, that's covetousness. It is. I'm guilty of that. I've done that before. We all make mistakes. But let's aspire not to do them. He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. Now, there are a few verses that can be extrapolated from in Proverbs regarding get-rich-quick schemes. Excuse me. Get-rich-quick schemes. Proverbs has several verses that hasn't, doesn't have anything good to say about get-rich-quick schemes. Labor for what you have. You'll appreciate it more. You know the parable of the, um, the prodigal son? He's a good example of this. He got given his inheritance. And he went off and he partied. He had the time of his life. And then a famine came across the land. And he was bankrupt. And you know what he was doing? He was feeding pigs with this uh, husks of some sort. And he wanted to eat those husks that the pigs were eating. That's how low he had gone. Get-rich-quick schemes usually don't work. And if they do work, you're hurting yourself. All right. Now that we've looked at some things about the Bible that have to say, speaking on biblical money management, let's go over to some more practical applications. In fact, seven steps with the time that we have left. But please, focus your attention on to what the Bible has to say. This practical part, if it helps you, great. If not, always fall back on the Bible. Okay, so let's look at some real-world applications of biblical money management. More specifically, 
uh, there's a, um, a series that our brother, Pastor Reed Benson, and his wife, Julie, put on a few years back. It's a, I'm sure most of you heard of him, Dave Ramsey. He's a well-known financial uh, guru. I believe he's been bankrupt at least once in his life, and since then he's really come up and he's really gained some good insight and wisdom into finances. So in my opinion, he's got some really, he's got some really good information for us to listen to if we're wanting to take what we've learned from God and add on to it. So, he has seven steps, seven steps to financial freedom, and we'll go through each seven of those. All right, let's start with step one. Step one is start. More specifically, start small. More specifically, start small with an emergency fund. What is an emergency fund? An emergency fund is something that you can fall back on if an emergency comes across your life. Let's say that Zach stubs his pinky toe, but he breaks it, and they have to go to the hospital, and they don't have any savings. Well, if they have their emergency fund, they can dig into that. Oh, this is an emergency. All right. Zach's pinky toe is fixed, and he can walk again. So, where do you start? A thousand. A thousand dollars is a good place to start. Okay? This is the key to not taking on more debt if you are already in debt. Okay? Think of it. You're in debt. You have a house payment. You have a car payment. You have all these payments that have stacked up on your life. You haven't had any room to pay into savings because of all these debt. This interest is piling on you. Well, if an emergency comes and you have this $1,000, at the very least, even if it doesn't cover all of it, it will help you to stay out of debt. So that's step one. Did you know that 56% of Americans can't handle a $1,000 emergency without taking on debt? 56% of Americans can't handle $1,000. So, how do we start starting? <laughs> well, you got to create a budget. Uh, when my wife and I got married, uh, in the church, they do marriage counseling before you're married, and they give you good advice. Pastor Dan Gaiman and Pastor Reed Benson offer excellent information before you get married here in the church. One of the things that Pastor Reed Benson says is to make a budget. In fact, I believe he makes you make a mock budget. Okay? A budget. It's numbers. How much do you make? How much do you spend? It sounds simple, because it is simple. It's simple addition and subtraction. Surely we all know what a thousand plus a thousand is, right? All right, and then minus 500. What do we get? Oh, right. Oh, budgets are easy. They just take a little bit of time. But you must have a budget if you want to reach a financial goal. You must visually realize what is occurring in your finances to make something happen. Make a budget. If you're in debt, until you have this $1,000 saved, only pay the minimum on your other payments. Only pay the minimum so you don't have to accrue more interest on them. Get this 1000 It's your first milestone. When you reach that first 1000 in savings, great. Now, I know that a lot of us here, this might not apply to you. I'm sure that there's great money managers here. But for those listening who are in debt and are starting out earlier in life, 
these may very well apply to you, and I, I hope and pray that this, uh, this helps out a little bit in some way. So, on your debts, only pay the minimum, and make sure to pay them on time so you avoid your late fees. Okay, now, step number two is pay off all your debts except your mortgage. Some notes on that. All right, by paying off your smallest debts, you create a snowball effect. Let's say you've got two cars, you're making payments on both of them, um, you're renting a TV from Rent-A-Center, I don't know why, but this is just a hypothetical situation. Okay, so our smallest debt is that TV that we're renting. Maybe you really want that TV, and let's say you really want that TV and you don't want to just sell it, which I recommend you do, but if you don't sell it, focus on that small debt first. Look at your smallest debt, focus on it first, get it out of there. Once you're done getting that small debt out of there, you've got to win. It's a small win, but it's something. It's motivation, it keeps you going. And you can take that money you're paying on that small debt and make it go to your next biggest debt. Snowball effect. You start small, you get bigger and bigger as you go down the hill, and then finally, you succeed. It might take a while, but bear with it. Have a little self-control. You can do it. While you're in the mindset of saving money and paying off your small debts, maybe look around for some stuff you don't use anymore and sell it. Maybe you have an extra car that doesn't get many miles. Sure, you might have to pack into the car you have now as a can of sardines. It might be a little uncomfortable, but hey, if you're in debt, aspire, try, very, try as hard as you can to get out of that even if it causes you some discomfort. All right, let's go to step three. Step three, we've got a thousand as an emergency fund in our savings account. We've paid off all our small debts except for our mortgage. Now, let's increase that emergency fund. Let's get it up to around three to six months of your house's expenses set aside as your new emergency fund. This will create a much larger cushion, and even further prevent you from going into any more debt if you already are. Even if you're not in debt, this is a great practice. So, run that budget that we set up back in uh, step one, and figure out your expenses. More numbers, it shouldn't be hard to figure out how much you spend in a month. If you have an app that you use for your bank, they keep all the numbers there for you. All you gotta do is get out your calculator, plus, 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 and look at all the large amounts of money that you spend on stuff. So, get that number, write it down, figure out your expenses. You don't have to do all the way to six months if you don't think you need it, but shoot for somewhere between three and six months. And for those uh, young people who don't own a home yet, this is a great place to also start saving for a home, okay? Because as a bachelor or bachelorette, um, your expenses are going to be very minimal. So whatever job you have, even if it's not paying very much, you'll be able to save most of that exclusively uh, without much expenses. So you need to be thinking towards your future. Young men, young women, you're going to be married someday, hopefully. Start focusing on your future. Think about your future young. The younger you start saving, the better off you'll be the easier you'll be able to avoid debt in the future. All right, now, this next part, 
Um, oh, sorry. Back to saving for a home, young men, young women, uh, for those who are saving up for a home. Uh, if you can't get the full 100% of a home, that's understandable. Homes are expensive. At least shoot for 20% or more. The closer you can get to 100% of the home, the better. So moving on now, steps four, five, and six. Um, for the most part, these steps can be done in conjunction. That is, they can be done together all right, with, um, with a little bit of multitasking. But it's not as difficult as it sounds. And this is a moment where you need to really look at your situation and prioritize what is important for your situation. Not everybody's situation is the same. Some people own their home outright but are having a car payment. Some people um, have a mortgage but have their cars owned and some people have expenses that other people don't. So, um, bear with that. Step four, uh, try to save around 15% of your household income. They say 15%, so around there, for retirement. Um, most employers offer a 401k or other type of investment which can be drawn directly from your paycheck so you don't even see it when you're in your paycheck. It goes straight to your retirement account. Now, retirement sounds good and all, but if I may, I have some thoughts on this point that uh, Mr. Ramsey puts forth. Um, <laughs> how many people who have retirement accounts right now have been seeing it go, thanks to President Biden? Yeah, my, my retirement account's been taking a big dive, for sure. And it's made me think. It's made me think about that word investment and retirement. Now, in a biblical worldview, I don't really know that retirement fits very well with a biblical worldview. Now, hear me out. A conventional retirement where you just sit around and do nothing all day. Maybe a biblical retirement is more, okay... Maybe you don't have a full-time job anymore. Maybe you can make your church your full-time job. Maybe you can be edifying and informing to the younger generation coming up. Maybe you can take some time because if you are an elderly person, I can guarantee you, you have more knowledge than me and more knowledge than any other young person. So you have a lot to give, okay? The next generation coming on is important. We need your knowledge. We need your information. Invest in us. Amen. And we will grow. Amen. We will. So think about what your retirement really is going to mean. An investment for young people. Investing for your retirement. How about instead of throwing it into a retirement fund that can go, depending on what's going on with the economy, invest in something that you can use no matter what, let's say, buy yourself some woodworking tools. Make an investment in some woodworking tools. People are always going to need stuff built. Invest in some metalworking tools, which our brother Nathan already has. Metal's a great construction, has great construction use. Maybe invest in some livestock, invest in some chickens, invest in some gardening equipment. It doesn't just have to be money. It can be in things that you can use no matter what happens with our country. Something that you can pass on to your kid. Something you can teach your children to be maybe self more self-sufficient. Now those examples I gave, they might not apply to you, but I'm sure that we can all think of something. Something that we maybe enjoy as a hobby that can be turned into something useful canning, 
Um, learning more in the kitchen. All sorts of stuff. Anyways, let's move on. Step number five. Save for your children's education. So, there are a couple options, um, according to Dave Ramsey for this. Uh, you have st uh, option number one. It's called an ESA. It's an education savings account, which allows you to contribute up to 2000 per year per child, and it grows tax-free. Sounds good and well. And then number two, you have what's called a 529 plan, which is a type of education savings plan account that allows you to contribute more than a regular ESA, more than that 2000 but still grows tax-free. Okay, so there's a couple options that um, can help you to grow your savings for your children's education, if you so choose. Once again, though, um, just like retirement investment, I have some personal thoughts, if I may address, here at the end of this step number five. Your child, their first and foremost teaching from you as a parent should not be to go out and seek the best paying job. It should not be to go out and seek to be the most successful you can be in a specific field. That's great and all. It sounds great. But what you need to focus on, first and foremost, is you need to be always and putting as the, at the forefront of your mind your service to God and your church. That needs to be their forethought. So then the thinking becomes... Okay, instead of, I need to go get the best job that pays the most amount of money, go. They're probably not going to stay here. Because this area, it, sometimes it doesn't have the best jobs. There are rare circumstances, but don't make that your focus. You can be successful and still be a constant member of your church who's always in the pew. This can still happen. Make that your child's goal. All right? Now, back to the aspect of saving for your child's education. College is good and well, but you don't have to go to college. College can set you up for success in many cases. Of course, there's also lots of indoctrination that gets taught, a lot of liberal propaganda that gets brought forth in the universities. We all know it. And hopefully the Holy Spirit can protect your child from that, and we can all pray for that. But don't be fooled into thinking that college is the only option. It's not. There are plenty of vocational opportunities with which you do not have to get a higher education than a high school diploma. And thankfully, God has blessed us here in this church with a school that allows our children to get a high school diploma without being indoctrinated by the public fool system. So think about that. College is not the only option. It's not. All right, step number six. This is a big one. Pay off your home early. Now, like I said, it's not like you do step four, then five, then six. No, these are done in conjunction, and you need to choose which is the more important one than you. Sorry, the more important one for you. So pay off your home early. This one's mostly self-explanatory. But pay extra on your mortgage until you pay it off. So, we all know how a mortgage works. Each month, you get, um, you get a bill for your monthly mortgage payment, and it's usually a set amount, let's say, $600, okay? $600 a month 
they want you to pay for your 15-year set rate mortgage, okay? So, if you pay that 600, only that 600 per month, you will pay the house off in 15 years. But that percent that they give you, what's, uh, it can be crazy low to crazy high. I think two all the way up to astronomical numbers, depending on how your credit is, up to like, I don't even want to give a ceiling number. But let's say you're paying 5%. You're paying 5% interest on a house that's $100,000 over the course of 15 years. That adds up very quickly. Very quickly, the bank is making, is bleeding you because they gave you a loan to buy that house. So, the faster you can pay that house off, the less money you will be giving them. Okay? Some banks are, I, I believe our bank, it was nice enough to, at the end of the year, they go, this is how much you paid in interest this year. And I always hated looking at that number. And that's the motivation I took to make sure that paying off that house was the number one priority. For us, this step number six was our number one priority. Okay? The quicker you pay off your home, the less interest your bank will fleece off of you. Now, hopefully a lot of us have heard of an amortization schedule. Okay? It's a schedule that your bank should print out for your loan that gives you an idea of the numbers along your journey throughout your house payment. Study it and look to see where you can advance that, where you can make it instead of 15 years. Okay, so if I want to pay off that loan that originally was 15 years in seven years, seven and a half years, I got to pay twice as much. So instead of 600 a month, you pay 1200 a month. That's a pretty big jump, I understand. Do what you can, but remember, all your other debts are paid off by now. So do as much as you can. Be aggressive with it, because it's the less money, less money you'll lose in the long run. All right, step number seven. It may take a while to reach this step number seven, but you did it. Praise God, through his blessings, guidance, and direction, you are now debt-free. It is a great thing to be debt-free. You are no longer servant to the lender. The Bible says the borrower is servant to the lender. You are no longer a slave. No one can, if you stop making your payments, just take your house away from you. Now, of course, if you don't pay your taxes for a while, I guess the government can come and take your house. So, are we? Ah. But let's not think about that. Let's look at the, the bank taking your, your house from you. Taxes are a lot easier to pay than a mortgage. Trust me. <laughs> but you're debt-free now. Praise God. Now you can focus your, uh, even more of your money on steps four and five. Investing in your community. Investing in your church. And saving for your kid's education or saving for your kid's future. So, remember, always aspire to make God proud with your use of his money. It's his. It's not ours. We're just given it temporarily to deal with. So remember to stop and think when you're praying, when you're reading your Bible. Ask yourself. Be real with yourself. Be true with yourself. Am I making God proud with what I am doing with my life? 
And I think that question in the Holy Spirit will guide you well. Well, that is the end of today's sermon. I thank you all for your time here and listening to me patiently. And I pray that this was edifying to you. Thank you all for your time.